Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Well, hello. This is episode 258 of the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. I'm very happy that you decided to join us here. What do I want to talk about today? Well, I want to talk about evangelical winsomeness. Evangelical winsomeness. The early part of the 20th century was the great battle between the modernists in the mainline denominations and the fundamentalists. The name fundamentalist came about because some wealthy donors gave some money to have a series of booklets printed on the fundamentals of the faith, inspiration of scripture, the deity of Christ, and so on. Those pamphlets are all collected in a four-volume set that you can get, which I I have a copy of, and which I've read through. They're they're quite good. Very um, able defenses of all the primary doctrines of Christianity. And there are some surprises. Um, Some of the writers are way more open to Darwin than I would be. I'm not open to Darwin at all. And there's a certain openness, certain level of openness to Darwin in the fundamentals. But the fundamentals were sort of the, uh, the line that the believing evangelicals within the mainline churches drew. And there was a big battle in the Presbyterian church primarily. It was a battle that affected a number of denominations. Uh, J. Gresham Machen made his um, made his name during this era, and so on. So what what happened was the liberals basically won. The liberals captured the mainline denominations at different times, of course, and they captured publishing houses, they captured magazines, they captured seminaries, whatnot. And the fundamentalists retreated and, you know, you might say retreated into the hill country of Arkansas and built an alternative network of Bible colleges and radio stations and independent Bible churches and so on. So there was the mainline denominations called mainline because they they were the brick and mortar, ivy covered churches. And then the fundamentalists who were Still snarling, still and very combative, were sort of ostracized and out of the mainstream. Now, that was all prior to World War II, all prior to World War II. And after the war, shortly after the war, a movement arose where there were believers who wanted to stand for the fundamentals of the faith without being fundamentalists. They wanted to hold to the fundamentals, but they wanted to put a smiley face on it. They wanted to be winsome. They didn't want to have the cranky, bad attitude that the fundamentalists had gotten the reputation for having. And so uh, this this post-World War II generation rose up and was represented by men like Carl Henry, Billy Graham, Harold Ockengay, well, actually, my dad was uh, one of them. Jim Wilson was part of that generation. I remember one time, much to my astonishment, saying, Dad, did you ever meet uh, Carl Henry? And he said, oh, yeah, I was in a Bible study with him. <laughs> it was that kind of thing. 
right? So after World War II, in the post-World War II moment, the evangelical world was very small, and there was a concerted effort to put a belief in the fundamentals of the faith on a, on a nicer footing. And this is when Christianity Today was founded. Um, Billy Graham was a major force in that. And Billy Graham was the face of evangelicalism for a number of decades. Now, what happened was, uh, and, I, and I think that it, there was a certain sensibleness in wanting to present the truths of the gospel in a winsome way. It's not that I believe that we must bite and snarl, but uh, there's a, I'm fond of saying there's always a ditch on both sides of the road. What happened was this idea that we must be winsome, we must be winsome, that got down into the evangelical DNA in a profound way. And over, over the decades, in, then um, I need to back up, this, this movement took off with the Billy Graham Crusades and Christianity Today and so on, but it didn't make the big time until Jimmy Carter, running for president and who won the presidency as a Democrat, declared himself to be a born-again Christian, and it was the year of the evangelical. It was the time of the evangelical. So, the, basically, the evangelical movement became sort of the center. They, they occupied the center of gravity in Christian affairs in North America. But after the 70s, in the 70s, there was a bunch of uh, uproar. There was the moral majority, Jerry, Jerry Falwell, uh, there was the Christian Coalition with Pat Robertson. So there were a lot of there were a lot of political collisions and bumps and bruises, and and so it went along with that. But taking one thing with another, as the decades unfolded, over time in the evangelical world, the cardinal virtue became niceness, and the cardinal sin. If you said, "What are the seven deadly sins?" according to an evangelical. The cardinal sin would be meanness, being mean. And the cardinal virtue is being nice, or to use the preferred term, being winsome. Now, once you adopt that, that means the progressives have got you because all they have to do is cast every issue in terms of meanness or niceness. So you can't be opposed to same sex marriage because you're being mean. Now the one the one issue that they didn't succeed on here and, and so they've they've succeeded on marriage they've succeeded on sexual ethics they've succeeded on various forms of economic collectivism but the one thing they where they didn't succeed was on the pro-life issue and that's the one place where evangelicals have sort of held the line and have accomplished this great victory in the Dobbs decision because it was a, it was just a steep, uh, steep uphill climb for the uh, progressives and the left to represent opposition to dismembering a baby as being mean. It was um, so. It's a mixed bag. That's that was a good thing. But on on a whole host of other social issues, evangelicals have been outmaneuvered simply because it would be death for an evangelical leader to accept the title of. You're mean the, to accept the accusation that you're mean. So, this is the reason why evangelicals, apart from 
apart from a great reformation and revival where the people come to their senses and say, we were wrong uh, about this whole thing. Our, we, we've, misread, we've misread the scriptures on this important point. In Galatians, I think it's chapter 5, in Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul says he wishes the Judaizers would overachieve and cut the whole thing off, uh, and they cut themselves off. So he's basically, Paul is wishing, desiring the self-castration of the false teachers at Galatia. But then in the very next verse, he tells the Galatians to love one another, you love your neighbors yourself. He tells them not to bite and devour. He says, you, if you bite and devour, there's going to be nothing left, and it implies that. So those two things are side by side. Evangelicals would never dream of saying anything like what you find in verse 12. And so consequently, I don't think should be trusted when it comes to telling us what the meaning of chapter uh, verse 13 uh, is. So, continuing on with the podcast, episode 258, we're studying different words that the New Testament uses for various sins, and our name for this study is hamartiology. As Satan is the father of lies, we should not be surprised that one of the sins is that of deceiving or beguiling someone. The word we're considering in this regard is exapateo, which is translated as to deceive or beguile. We have a goodly handful of uh, passages that use this word, actually. So, in the first instance, uh, sin speaks as the serpent in the garden did. So, sin talks the same way the serpent did, promising that death would not be the result. The serpent said, you shall not surely die. And what does sin say? Well, in Romans 7.11, it says, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Paul says in Romans 7, sin did two things. Sin lied to me, and sin was then able to kill me as a result. And of course, part of the lie is going to be, I'm not going to kill you. And that's what precisely what the serpent did. I'm not going to kill you by persuading you to eat this fruit, but that's precisely what he did do. You shall not surely die, but they did die. And sin took occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Although in the next passage, our translators use the English word beguiled instead of deceived, we're still in the garden. This is from 2 Corinthians 11. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So, the serpent beguiled Eve. The next instance points to the rhetorical abilities of certain belly gods by which they are able to deceive the simple. Not only does it say that they deceive the simple, but also that they deceive the hearts of the simple. This is in Romans 16:18. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. In other words, the glossy brochure talks a fair game, but there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. So, oftentimes, people who are belly gods, people who are those in pursuit of their own lusts, whether they are lust for food or lust for sex or lust for drugs or lust for power, The people who are pursuing those things can talk a very good game. The next lie was a doctrinal deception, having to do with the timing of God's eschatological judgments. 
2 Thessalonians 2.3 Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So don't let anyone snooker you with regard to prophecies about the end of the world or the coming of Christ or, you know, it's very easy to have lurid predictions of the end. And Paul says, don't let anybody lie to you. The last use concerns a very, uh, a very mysterious form of lying. We are talking about self-deception. How is it possible for a man to tell himself a lie and to have that same man buy it? Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> One part of your brain tells a, a lie to another part of your brain, and that second part of your brain is a dope and believes it. So the same person is the deceiver and the deceived. That's what self-deception means. The same person is doing the lying and doing the believing. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says this, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. So, nevertheless, it is possible to deceive yourself. It does happen, and it often arises out of our desire to flatter ourselves. It also arises, as James tells us, out of hearing the word and not doing the word. So, if any man hears the word and does not do it, James says, he deceives himself. He thinks he's obeying the Bible because he puts up with sermons that tell him to obey the Bible. God don't never change. He's God. All right. So, book I'm, I want to review and commend to you is a book by G.K. Chesterton called All Things Considered. And this is basically, I'm, I'm guessing from the way the, the chapters read, it's, it's a collection of uh, essays, or we might say newspaper columns, on, on any number of disparate issues on, you know, alcohol, for uh, dealing with alcohol, or titles of nobility, or the, dealing with the aristocracy. So, basically, contemporary issues that churned England up during Chesterton's time. One of the things that astonishes me about Chesterton is how he can be talking about a controversy that's, you know, about a hundred years old, long, uh, a controversy that's long gone, and all the principles in it are dead. Nobody's al- nobody that was a participant in that controversy is here anymore. And he can be making comments on that controversy. And because he's got, because he's such a principled thinker, he's able to go to the root of the matter. And in going to the root of the matter, he says things. He'll, he'll give you pithy quotes, sentences about the nature of science or the nature of drinking to excess or what's happening when someone drinks to excess or what's happening when someone is a social climber. He'll, he'll say these pithy things that are as fresh and relevant today as they were when he wrote them. It really is, it really is astonishing. There are people who are sort of so relevant to their current time that they become irrelevant after 10 minutes. Chesterton wasn't like that. He was relevant in his day and all the more relevant today, now.